Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 101. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. The 10,000 hour principle states that 10,000 hours of deliberate practice are needed in order to become world-class in any field. And our guest this episode, Ivan Mazel, has at least far exceeded that number in words that he has written about college football in his career, so it's easy to say that he's an expert in this field when it comes to college football. Growing up in Mobile, Alabama, Ivan would venture to the West Coast, attending Stanford University, eventually returning east where he would become a mainstay with the Dallas Morning News before serving as a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and CNNSI.com. Since 2002, Ivan has been covering college football for ESPN as a senior writer, and in fact, his tenure on the National College Football Beat is the longest uninterrupted tenure of any writer in the country. He's been honored six times by the Football Writers Association of America for Best Story, and he also earned the Burt McGrain Award in 2016, which is the equivalent to the Hall of Fame. You'll also find Ivan appearing on ESPN TV, radio, and even their podcast, and he's now the editor-at-large for College Football 150. Here's episode 101 with Ivan Mazel. Ivan, thank you so much for oh, allowing me to to come to Connecticut, to come into your home, and sit down, and kind of share your journey and the gravitational pull of sports to you. I greatly appreciate it. I just have to ask, though, you're from Mobile, Alabama. How did you end up in Connecticut? <laughs> a Southern a boy, <laughs> married a Yankee. Yeah, we were. Uh, we met in New York when I was a fact checker, and uh, I got a job in Dallas. And she came down with me, and she liked Dallas. And finally, after about we'd been there six years, she said, I want to move back east. And I said, I don't. <laughs> and she and, and Meg looked at me and said, well, you're not home. I'm the one who's home. And I went, oh, God, she's smart. Yeah, She's right. Yeah, <laughs> I, had no, I had no answer for that. And so we moved back up. Yeah, we've been in... Fairfield for 20-something years, yeah. Well, then, what was it like, though, then, growing up in Mobile, Alabama, in the Maisel household, and how that gravitational pull to sports, how did it affect your family and how you got into sports? Well, I was uh, I was a kid that just glommed on to sports at a very early age. I literally learned to read reading the sporting news. Uh, you know, we, uh, um, we had a woman who worked for us named Rosalie Caldwell who would read the sporting news and she would bring it every Saturday to the house and I would sit on her lap and, and read it. And it kind of germinated from there. My, my father had been a high school basketball coach before I was born. So he was, and he was an Alabama graduate, and that was the the heyday of Bear Bryant. So that was a big deal in our house. Uh, and 
you know, whatever sport it was, was, you know, the Braves moved to Atlanta when I was in first grade and, uh, or in kindergarten. And so that became a big obsession, uh, you know, and it, it just, uh, it went from there. Yeah. I just, you know, loved it. And was there a particular sport that you loved more? I loved, uh, well, I loved college football and I loved baseball. And I grew up thinking that, you know, and you would appreciate this having grown up in Atlanta. I was going to replace Milo Hamilton as yep. the Braves <laughs> play-by-play announcer. Okay, yes. And actually, when I got out of college, when I, I was a fact checker at Sports Illustrated, I was assigned to baseball as I wanted. And I really didn't like it. You know, it Why not? I, I didn't like the people all that much in the sport. Uh, it was when the big money was just beginning to hit baseball. And, and I, I found that, you know, the, the athletes didn't really need the media the way that they used to, you know, and, and it was such a confrontational atmosphere in the locker room with, with the, writers in general and it's not it's not that it's confrontational it's that i think baseball as are a lot of sports are it's a very clubby thing and until you're accepted you know and i was a kid and trying to find my way and it was actually a little easier for me because i was from sports illustrated so they i had some credibility that i didn't really deserve but i just didn't like I, i i I liked college sports a lot better. You know, I thought the coaches were uh, – college coaches, as you would know, are are mentors in a lot of ways to young people, and and they're teachers. And I really – and leaders, you know, so you kind of – I like talking to them. And and when I was that age, when I broke into the business, you know, the kids who were playing, I could relate to. And I sort of looked at the sort of looked at the coaches as authority figures, and then the longer I did it, I related to the coaches because we were the same age. <laughs> and then and then as I and then I got older, and and the kids were the age of my kids, so I could talk to them in a way that I hadn't before. Uh, so it just has kind of fit my life better. And you mentioned, you know, being accepted into the club, so to speak, especially from a writer standpoint with some of these athletes. And is it a time situation in terms of being accepted into the club as far as they have to see you around so much? Or is it somewhat also like what type of articles you're writing or what type of stories you're writing or combination? Yeah, I think it was more baseball is a day to day job and. Uh, the daily beat guys get accepted because they're there every day. Sports Illustrated, we weren't there every day. We weren't at the, in the same locker room every day, but we were accepted because we were Sports Illustrated. And and I met some players that I really enjoyed covering, uh, and and I met some managers that you know I, I got along with. And, you know, it wasn't always as you know, adversarial or uncomfortable as I'm painting it, but it just, I had this vision in my head of, of, I would just fall in love with it. And I didn't. And, uh, and I was, when you start out back in the day, when you started out as a fact checker at sports illustrated, you wrote on your time 
And so I was work, you know, and I, I just was in there every, I was in there seven days a week and learning. But at some point, I wasn't good enough to be a writer at Sports Illustrated at that time. And I needed to go get a job where I could write every day. And so I left for a newspaper. I'd been there five years in five and a half years, and I left to get a newspaper job. And so you were Sports Illustrated as a fact checker for five years. Yes, uh, I was there. Now, that was not my first job. My first job, you would appreciate this, was in Atlanta. This was before the newspaper merger at the Constitution. Oh, yes. And they hired me straight out of college. I was 21 years old. They didn't want to give me anything important because I was 21 years old. (laughs) And so they gave me, because it's Atlanta, they gave me Clemson and South Carolina to cover because there's a lot of alums in the Atlanta area, as you might imagine. And uh, that was 1981. And Clemson never lost. And about the first week in November, they were getting ready to play a big game against Carolina, North Carolina. And, uh, and it dawned on them that they had a really hot story and they had this 21-year-old dumbass covering it, <laughs> if I can say that on your podcast, because it's true. You can. Yeah. And, uh, and so then they took one of the older guys and, and he would come do the game stories on the week and I would sort of, I would cover on the weekend, I would cover Clemson during the week and write a sidebar on Saturday. And I was fine with that because I was so over my head. But I always say to Danny Ford when I see him, you know, I covered you when you were dark-headed and skinny, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, it comes full circle now that we're sitting down together shortly after Clemson wins their third national championship. Yeah, it's uh, remarkable. And, and I, I'm sure you're – uh, gobsmacked, but just the, the change and, and, uh, you know, people were, I heard people sort of mocking Dabo a little bit, talking about little old Clemson. Well, if you know Clemson and you have any historical perspective about Clemson, you understand where he was coming from. That's right. Yeah. It is little old Clemson. Yeah. It, it, it's not anymore. No, it's not. But, but it, it is. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. Mm-hmm. So now, how did you get from Alabama to Stanford? Before you moved to Atlanta with your first job. <laughs> Again, you're all over the country. Yeah. Well, uh, I was good in school. The Ivy League intimidated me. The New England weather intimidated me. I would never live in New England. Even well, though I, you are now. Yeah, for, for nearly 25 <laughs> years. But when I was 17 years old, I certainly wouldn't. And I didn't want to watch Ivy League football. That board, that I thought, no, oh, that's not important. And somebody said to me as a senior in high school, and I don't remember whom, well, you should look at Stanford. That's a good school. And the immediate thought I had was, well, they're in the Pac-8. I could watch that for four years. Okay. (laughs) And that that was it. That was it. I applied. And, you know, they were, I'm sure, fainted because somebody from Alabama applied. And, uh, And Stanford loves to have kids from all 50 states. I'm just not sure the bar was quite as high for me uh, having gone to to Murphy High in Mobile as it might have been for others. Uh, But there were two kids in my freshman class from Alabama. The other was a a women's basketball player from Montgomery. So and then I think uh, over the course of my four years, there were a total of six Alabama kids. That's not many. No. So 
the first, I'd say, Rich, about the first six weeks I was in school, I had to repeat everything I said because they couldn't understand me. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. With a southern yeah. drawl, yeah. I imagine you did have it. Your name's Arvin? No. <laughs> no, it's Ivan. I, what? Yeah. No, I, I had to learn to go I. You know, Ivan. You know. Oh, okay. So. Were you ever homesick? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sure. You know, I, I think I probably would have been homesick anywhere. Uh, and uh, I, I tell this story. My mother didn't want me to go that far away. And and my father just looked at her and said, well, because he knew I wanted to go. And he and he, uh, this was just so my dad. He just looked at my mom and said, well, if it's too far for him to drive, what do you care how long he's on the plane? <laughs> and, and so she, yeah, I was like, wow, that was good. Yeah. That's profound. Yeah, right? yeah. So it was true. So I would, yeah. you know, I, I went home. Uh, to it, you know, I went home. I was lucky. I'd go home when I needed to. You know, before you get to Stanford, though, had you already had it in your mind? Now, you might not be the play-by-play guy for the Atlanta Braves, but yeah. you wanted to be a sports writer. Well, I had a, uh, a English teacher my senior year, Ruth Welburn, uh, and uh, she gave me confidence that I could write. You know, and you know, I would write stuff, and she was so enthusiastic and so encouraging and so I thought well hey I got I know I can I can do this is something I might be able to do and uh, you know first week I was on campus I walked into the Stanford Daily and and uh, presented myself and and just started writing you know first week or two I was there I was interviewing the head coach who was this guy I didn't you know I'd never heard of him he was Brand new there, his first year. Didn't know who he was from third base. His name was Bill Walsh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, yeah, that's, went a, from there. that's a known name now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. He, he did okay. And, and, uh, it was funny. He, you know, of course he didn't remember me, but our paths crossed again when he went back to Stanford in the 90s and, and he got a real kick out of me telling him, you know, my memories of those meetings. Uh, and he was a terrific guy. Now, were you at Stanford for the infamous Stanford-Cal game? I was in the stands. I had graduated the year before, but I had gone back. I was, you know, as soon as the baseball season ended, my first season at, at Sports Illustrated in 1982, I went out just to decompress and hang with my buddies and go to big game. And so, yeah, I was in the stands. You were in the stands. So what was that like? Well, the memory I have is uh, we were sitting uh, on the side where the final touchdown was played, you know, in the end zone on the side, on the other side, because it was on the right side of the end zone. And I just remember this just sort of chaos and thinking, well, surely, you know, they're not going to say that was a touchdown. <laughs> and And all my Stanford buddies are cheering, and I'm just sitting there going – they're not saying game's over yet. And the, and the officials were huddling and, and my best friend I'm sitting next to, he's screaming, yelling, and I'm just going, this isn't good. It's not good. This is not good. This is not good. And then, you know, the, the white hat gives it one of those and you could just see the fans below the press box just sort of, it was like a wave that just sort of spilled onto the field and just went delirious. And, 
And I remember walking back to wherever we parked and the Cal fans being really sort of sympathetic. You know, yeah, we don't really understand that or what happened. I don't know how it yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, he, uh, you guys, you know, that was really too, yeah. It, and that's sort of the nature, in my experience, of the Stanford Cal rivalry. It's not a bloodlust the way it is where, you know, we grew up. But, um, the, yeah, that was, uh, that was a real stroke of good fortune. And, and at that time, you don't really know whether people around the country would understand what had happened. You know, you're thinking, how big of an impact would this make? And the next morning, since it was the West Coast, I turned on uh, NFL Today uh, just to see if they said anything, and Brent Musburger led with it. And I went, yes. okay, they get it's it. It's a big it, deal. It's a big deal, yeah. Arguably the greatest finish in college football history. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I was, and I covered the kick six, so I, you know, I was there for that. Uh, I was in the press box when Cordell Stewart threw his pass. Uh, so you've seen some crazy That's about finishes. the top three crazy finishes, yeah. yeah. Now, when you have you ever gone back and really watched the end of that Stanford-Cal game and said, all right, that you play's mean, not legal. <laughs> you mean studied it like the Zapruder film? Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> uh, as uh, uh, Meg, my wife, just refers to it as his knee was down. Because every time we watch it, I go, his knee was down. <laughs> Exactly. And somebody did a really, uh, I wish I could remember who, somebody did a terrific documentary on the play a few years ago. And and John Elway, who you know did not get to play in a bowl game because of that call, just said, he just smiled. He says, you know, if we had won that game, nobody would remember it. So he said, I'm good with it. Yeah. At least it's memorable, yeah. I guess, from that standpoint. What other memories do you have from your early days of, you becoming a writer and almost when did you feel that you were more of a storyteller than just a writer? It's a good question. Uh, it took me a long time to figure out that that's what, you know, I had a sense that that was it because I came from a family of storytellers. You know, I have memories of as a child, it, whatever, uh, Jewish holiday or Thanksgiving where the, you know, my dad and his siblings would get together and, uh, they were a family of storytellers. So after the meal, everybody would sit around the table and they'd start talking about growing up in Mobile. And I was just riveted by that. And my dad was a terrific storyteller. And, uh, so I always sort of, I think that's a lot of where, what ability I have came from genetically or, you know, um, yeah, it's part of your DNA. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Figuratively and literally. Yeah. Uh, and then it just was learning how to get that onto the page. And that took me, uh, I feel like it took me a long time. I mean, I did it for a long time before I felt like I was comfortable with my voice. Uh, I used to really sweat over it and, and now I can kind of look at it and go, okay, that's the story I want to tell. And, and I do it. And so How do you choose the story that you want to tell? Just what looks interesting to me or, or what, how I can relate it to something, you know, that, that I've seen before or, or, or place it in perspective. I mean, if I really get stuck and I tell this to, to kids who ask me about it, if I really get stuck about what to, to write, 
I think, well, if I were going to call my brother and say, tell him what happened in this game, what's the first thing I would tell him? Because he thinks the same way I think, and we have a great relationship, and he's a huge sports fan. And and so I kind of, well, okay, let, let's see if I can make that work, and I build on that. And so what's your process then? I mean, what's your routine when you're getting ready to, to write a story in terms of research, or you have a certain spot you go to Ooh, yeah. start writing. Well, I have uh, I have a wall of books upstairs that I've collected over thirty plus years of covering college football. Uh, and you know, if it's a historical piece, I I just you know pluck them off the wall and start doing that. And and now that I'm working on this 150th anniversary of college football project. That's all I've been doing is, you know, had my nose in my books. Um, you know, I, I after that, it's just sort of my, the knowledge of having done this since 1987. And, you know, knowing whom to call and, and knowing that they'll return my call, which doesn't always happen, but it happens more than it used to. And uh, I imagine it's easier that they return your call now than oh, it was yeah. when you first started. Well, it, you know, it's funny that, that you say that uh, because I got hired to cover college football by the Dallas Morning News in 1987. And coaches always called me back and they didn't know me, you know, from Adam, but as I came to learn, I, that was a really lucky, I was really lucky to get that job because the morning news covered more college football than any paper in the country. And with all the talent in Dallas, coaches wanted their name in the Dallas morning news. So whoever I needed, I got, you know, nine times out of 10. So it was, uh, that was a really lucky stroke that Dave Smith hired me. What other like mentors did you have that helped you be able to spread your wings and you know uh, help you with your writing and storytelling? Oh, uh, there was a writer at Sports Illustrated when I was a fact checker in the 80s named Ron Femright, uh, who was just terrific. He was a wonderful man, a, a bon vivant kind of guy, you know, he just couldn't have been nicer. And his copy was so clean you could eat off of it. Yeah. <laughs> and what do you mean clean? Just uh, every, you know, it was, uh, it didn't need to be copy edited. You know, the story was exactly, you know, as he wrote it, didn't need to be edited. Everything was in the order it needed to be in. The grammar was good. Uh, there were no typos. You know, this was in the day before computers. And the, <laughs> I mean, it was just pristine. And, uh, I had, we, one, another of my mentors was an editor at Sports Illustrated named Walter Bingham. And Walt used to say to me, you know, I read Ron's stories and I, I just want to change the word large to big. So the editors above me will know I read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I can say, at least I did one yeah, thing. Yeah, I did yeah. my job. Uh, so Ron was just a great he was just a terrific man. He died a few years ago. Uh, he, he meant a lot to me. Um, and Dan Jenkins, you know, Dan was, uh, you know, was and is and remains a legend in, in sports writing. And, and his first love was college football, maybe second behind golf. Uh, 
but Sally, who, his daughter, who is a columnist at the Washington Post, and I went to college together. So yeah. I knew Dan as a college kid and always kept in touch with him and still keep in touch with him. And he's still loves college football. He still follows it, you know, religiously. And, uh, uh, you know, so he was, he was a mentor and, 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 uh, somebody for me to look up to. And when you look at your stories, what makes it a successful story or how do you define success in, in terms of, <laughs> Oh, that's a that's a good piece. That's a good story because in sports, yeah, we can define it: win or a loss. That's that's why how... I cover sports. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because you know, because I loved as a kid and still have a great interest in politics. But I didn't want to cover politics because it's really hard at the end of the day to figure out. You know, it just keeps going. You know, the, the arguments never stop, and and in sports they stop. That's right. And you say, well, yeah, they won. Uh, um. I, uh, uh, I'm pretty hard on myself. I don't say that a whole lot. Uh, I think most writers, well, I'm, I'm not going to speak for most writers. I have this sort of rhythm in my head of, and if the story you know, comes out by that rhythm, then it, and it feels right. And it feels right. And, and it, and if it's accurate, uh, you know, if I hadn't made any mistakes, um, uh, then I'm, then I'm okay with it, you know, and I can, you know, I, I write a lot more conversationally than I used to, which I think is partly because of the way things have changed by writing on the internet. I think it's partly age and, and comfort with my own voice. Uh, but there's just sort of a, you know, I can just hear it in my ear, whether it's working or not. And does it usually come out pretty, uh, I mean, does it flow out when you start writing? Everything I've you... ever written has flowed. No, <laughs> of course. Uh, yes. Yeah. No, no, obviously, uh, it, they vary, uh, you know, yeah. it sometimes, you just see it right away. And so this writer's block, I mean, is it real? Uh, yeah, to me, it's, it's not so much writer's block. It's the, it's maintaining your focus. You know, if I'm focused and there's, you know, my distractions are, uh, um, at a minimum, you know, if I've hidden this, uh, then, then I don't get blocked. And sometimes what I'll just, if I am blocked, I'll, I'll think, well, I don't know what my lead is yet, but I know I'm going to write this. I know this is going to be a part of the story. So I'll just write a chunk of something. And then, and I get that on the screen and then I go, okay, all right. So you've got that in place. And then I find something else. And that's not how they teach you to do it in journalism school. And I don't know that I would recommend it. You're <laughs> okay. supposed to write an outline and then follow your outline. And, and probably to my detriment, I don't do that enough. Uh, but, uh, and it's probably harder to do it the way I do it, I guess. But it, I don't, I, I never quite had the self discipline to do it the right way. And what about your relationship with? 
copy editors? Is it contentious at times? Like, hey, no, I don't. Yeah. I like the flow of this. I like the framework How of this. How dare you? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I've never had a, well, never is a strong word. Having come up at Sports Illustrated in a very heavily edited organ, you know, a magazine by definition is an editor's organ because they're the ones controlling it more so than a writer sending it in to a newspaper on deadline. Uh, I didn't, I've never had a trouble. I never had trouble with being, with being edited. I might have trouble with individual edits, but I always understood. And, and I was never that arrogant to think that everything I wrote was, <laughs> it know, was perfect. Came on a, you know, a stone tablet. Uh, yeah. I, you know, now, uh, I do bristle. And it's why I left Sports Illustrated not once, but twice. Uh, I, I do bristle at when somebody who wasn't there and knows more about the story than, than, you know, I who was there. But, uh, by and large, I'm okay with being edited. And so what was the appeal then to leave Sports Illustrated to ESPN though? Because I imagine you could have done so many different things. Well, uh, it's nice of you to say that, but this was 2002 and, and the, you know, the, the print world was beginning to wobble a little bit. Uh, and Sports Illustrated was beginning to wobble a little bit. Uh, and I thought about going back to newspaper, but it would have been a significant pay cut. Um, and ESPN approached me, uh, in the summer of 02. And this is how long ago this was, Rich. We're thinking of hiring a college football writer, a college football writer. (laughs) Just one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because at that time, you know, I mean, ESPN.com began in 1995, And so this was, people weren't really going to the internet for their news yet. We're thinking of hiring a college football writer. Would you be interested? And I thought, well, I don't know about the the whole idea of the internet working, but I know ESPN's not going anywhere. So you could see that. Yeah. And maybe this will be, you know, I can use this as a platform by which to do television or to do, you know, and. Uh, and so I took the leap and it was, you know, really lucky, really lucky. You know, that was 16 years ago. And as we've seen, the print world is just, you know, it is changing. much less healthy than it was in 2002. And, uh, and, and we sort of became the go-to place for college football coverage. And how has social media changed anything that you do? Uh, well, if you would ask my daughters, they would tell you I'm not very good at it. <laughs> uh, they keep saying to me, Dad, you need to be on Instagram. And I keep saying, I don't think in photographs. I think in words. And and they roll their eyes and, you know. Uh, Twitter is, you know, I... I 
I don't love Twitter. Uh, you know, I, we've all kind of figured out what Twitter's good at and what it's not, what it's good for and what it's not good for. And I, I use it to just sort of try to keep up and I will, you know, put my stories out via Twitter and occasionally I will tweet about games or something in the news. I do it a lot less than I used to because it's just such a unpleasant place to be by and large, uh, you know. Uh, Unfortunately, there's a lot of negativity. Yeah, and so I just I have uh, I have pared back what I do on it. Um, so, uh, and I I go on Facebook religiously three or four times a year. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And really, I wanted to. I decided that professionally, I really wasn't that interested in using Facebook, and and I go on now to kind of see my, you know nieces and nephews, children, and, and, and check in on my high school friends, and that's about what I use it for. You mentioned TV or radio or whatever, being a play-by-play guy. You've got the voice. Yeah. You have got the voice. Well, I never, yeah, but I never, I, you know, I, I never went into radio. I, I liked writing more, uh, you know. The, yeah, and why is that? I like telling stories, and I like... Telling people, you know, we all like to tell people something they don't know. And, hey, hey, guess what I saw? Hey, check this out. You know, hey, did you know this? I mean, that's the essence of what we do. And that's a lot of fun for me. And it's still a lot of fun for me. You know, uh, my favorite thing about doing this College Football 150 project is there's so many great historical stories that people today don't know or don't know much about. And it's just this trove of, hey, did you know this? Hey, ch- this is a really cool story. Sit down and I'll tell it to you. So that I'm having a lot of fun with that. Uh, yeah, so explain a little bit more about that because I know it's yeah. not going to be launched until September or the first portion well, the, of it. The video stuff will not yes. come out. And we're, what we're going to do, Rich, is uh, in beginning in late August, I think, there will be 150 days, consecutive days of content on ESPN of something. Um, We have 35 hours of original programming. There'll be uh, two two 11-week series that will run beginning from September to December about the history of the game. One is called uh, The American Game, and one is called The Greatest. Uh, there will be two documentaries. One will run at the beginning of the year, one at the end of the year, called Football Is Us. Um, we'll have something called My Story, which will be 150 60-second vignettes from people in the game, former players, coaches, media people, fans who have a story to tell that, you know, nobody knows, and, you know, uh, uh, and then the content, on, I'm going to do a series of, of eight historical podcasts called Down in Distance that we'll, we will drop in August. I'm working on now. Uh, and then online on ESPN.com, we'll have content all year long. I wrote the first week of January, I wrote a Welcome to 150 essay about the game and its place in history. In American history. So in each month until August, we'll have at least one big 
historical piece about the hit, you know, about the game. And then during the season, we'll have more than, you know, probably more like one a week. And why do you think that people just love college football so much to the point where we were celebrating 150 years of the game yeah. in such a big way like this to have its own organization? I mean, it's just amazing. Why do you think that is? I think there's some connection uh, that people make with their school. Either they went there or it represents their state. And there's an emotional connection there that no other sport has. Some of it is because of the age you are when you go to college. And that's when you are making your mark as your own person. You're not your parent's child anymore. You're well, you think you're an adult. Anyway. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. think you know it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And and if you think about it, and I've thought about this a lot in the context of this project, the friends you make when you are in college are your lifelong friends. And they know you better than anybody knows you. And really, how much time did you spend with them? You know, some one year, some four years. And yet you can pick up the phone and you can call them and you pick up right up where you left off the last time you talked. And in turn, you know, if you think about what the people you've met in the last four years uh, as an adult, there's, you know, it's nothing like that. That's right. So there's something about the imprint of your college life that fuels that passion you have for your, your team. And it may have started earlier in that if you grew up in a in a household where that that team was revered because your parents went to that school, then you know you you come into that passion that way. But people are certainly more passionate about college sports than they are about professional sports. You know that the SEC takes a lot of heat for how they do things from around the country, but. Their slogan, their new, their current slogan of "it means more," is absolutely right. And college sports do mean more, and I think that connection is why we're doing what we're doing with 150. I think it's just amazing that it's such a big project like it is. So, how did you get involved? Well, other than the fact that we know you're one of the most renowned college football writers out there. Right? Well, it's funny. You know, I, I, I had it in the back of my head for a, a while that, okay, 2019, 150. And uh, I emailed, five years ago, I emailed John Skipper, who was then the head of ESPN, and just said, hey, 2019, 150th anniversary of college football, when do you want me to start bugging you about this? And he wrote back and said, three years out. He said, great idea. And, you know, come back to me in 2016. Well, what I didn't know, John Dahl, who is the executive producer of 30 for 30 Films, had, you know, right around that time and probably a little before me, was doing a documentary on the Mannings, a 30 for 30 on the Mannings. And he had seen Archie Manning playing for Ole Miss in 1969 and seeing the 100 sticker on his helmet. And he thought, what in God's name is that? And so he looked it up and saw it was the centennial. And, and he, so he got the bug in his head that way. So three years ago, John and I found one another within the company 
you know, somebody said to me, hey, John Dahl's talking about 150, you should go talk to him. And so we've, went with uh, Rob Temple in sales, the three of us would meet and have lunch and start to plan this. And it got bigger and bigger. And and luckily, the the powers that be at ESPN bought into our project and our ideas and off we went. And how much are you enjoying the podcasting side of the project versus the writing side? Well, I, I am in, I'm enjoying it. I, I am learning that writing a podcast script is different <laughs> than writing a story, but that's fun. You know, I'm learning yeah. something new. Uh, but no, it's been good. We are, uh, you know, we're developing the scripts right now. And um, uh, so... Well, unfortunately, it means that when I write a story and want to turn it into a pod script, I have to turn around and, and write it again in a completely different form. So it's, I thought it wouldn't be twice as much work, and it's turning out to be twice as much work, but that, it's, it's still fun. Yeah. And now, why didn't you move to Bristol when you started working for ESPN? Because I didn't have to, and it's nothing about Bristol, but we've been in this house since 1995 and I've had three jobs in this house, you know, uh, so, uh, you know, ESPN's got writers all over the country and they didn't care and I didn't have to be in the office every day and I don't want to be in the office every day. You know, I, as much as I traveled, uh, the fact that when I was home, when I wasn't traveling, I was in the house working you know, and the kids came home from school and I could be here and I could run them places if I needed to run them. For a, for a parent that travels a lot, that was invaluable. And, it, and luckily, ESPN was cool with it. And throughout your whole career, the long career writing, have you ever tried to calculate how many words you've ever written throughout <laughs> your career? Wow. No. <laughs> No, I do know that I'm a, over 1,400 Marriott nights and <laughs> That's a lot. 3 million miles on Delta. So, uh, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, and you throw in the other hotels, I've probably spent, you know, five years on the road, maybe five years, you know, which... Sports writers, that's what you do. I mean, that's part of the grind. Especially if you live in Connecticut and want to cover college football. That's right. Yeah. You no got to be traveling. To the Huskies. But... <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Another thing that you, you did share publicly uh, was the death of your son, Max, several years ago. And I don't have something, I mean, I have something in common with you regarding that. I didn't lose a child, but my brother was shot and killed four years ago. So understand, you know, the, just the harshness of a pain like that. How has his death affected your writing, though? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think I have a much broader perspective now. You know, I realize that the game, the games aren't as important to me. And then part of that may be age, but I think part of it is, uh, you know, you, you really kind of, you know, you, you learn what's important in a way that you wish you never had. Um, so I think I'm a little, uh, I'm a little softer in how I do a story and I have a little more empathy 
than than maybe I had before uh, for people and what they're going through. Um, And I'm a little more interested. I'm not as, I would put it this way, I'm not as focused on the newsy story and, you know, I got to get this, I got to be first, I got to write this piece because that's what's happening. I'd rather just sort of find a good story and tell it. And I did also read that you, when you were reflecting not too long ago about, you made a comment that through his death, you've learned that you can't be anchored somewhere. What did you mean by that? Well, the point I was trying to make with that, Rich, is that you know you want to stay, you know, you want to stay where Max is um, because that's your only chance to be with him. But you can't do that. You know, your life keeps going on, and at some point, and he wouldn't want us to do it this way. You know, you got to keep living your life, and so you just learn that you have to, you can't be anchored where Max was, you know, uh, you just have to carry that grief with you wherever you go. And, and, uh, it, it's feels a little harsh to pull away like that, but what choice do you have really? Uh, Tyler Trent, uh, shortly before he died, the kid at Purdue, mm-hmm that we all fell in love with last year, wrote a column for the Indianapolis Star that I just loved. And I didn't read it until after he died. Uh, you know, and he said basically, and he wanted to be a sports writer. And so he, and he could write. He said, I'm in hospice now, but really when you think about it, we're all in hospice. You know, we're all, you know, we are all going to die. That's and right. So you have to live your life with that in mind. And that's a that's a powerful thought and one that people avoid like the plague, but it's the truth. And, it is. Yeah, and, and you just, you know, it, it sort of centers you in a way that perhaps, you know, certainly I wasn't centered before. And have you thought about like when it would be a point in terms of your career that you would be done? Or will you ever stop writing? Well, I don't know that I'll ever start writing, stop writing because, uh, because I enjoy it. You know, whether I would do it, you know, I, I, I love what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm in my 17th year at ESPN. I, I, I serve at the pleasure of, <laughs> of the king. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, my contract will, you know, it's got a, a little bit more to go on it, but, uh, I don't see myself leaving soon. I do see myself leaving because it's a young person's business. And I'm, you know, I'm not, I've beaten the odds by making it this far. Really, if I look around in a press box and there aren't very many people my age, there's a couple. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to figure out what I would do you know, down the road. I, I'm, I'm going to teach a class this winter uh, in continuing studies, you know, adult learning. Uh, 
at Stanford on the history of college football because, you know, it's, it's, I got it all here. I mean, we've been planning it for three years. I so need I to attend that class. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I don't know how you'd be able to pull that off. That's but, right. Yeah. Um, so that'll be, you know, we'll see if I like that. I don't, I, I don't know, you know, in adult learning is not, it's not being a professor of kids, but it, I'll just see what, you know, how I like that and go from there and see how it flows. Yeah. Yeah. And through all the words that we you've written, you know, one thing I like to focus on is words of wisdom. So what words of wisdom has meant a lot to you that uh, you'd like to share? And it could be phrases, quotes or mottos or just life advice. Well, uh, if I have, <laughs> you know, if I have become wiser in the last few years it's it's because of of losing max um you know it's uh the the running joke we've so you know we've said is that that you know max gave us that gift and and really on the whole i would have rather had a dozen golf balls yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh but uh, it's, um, you know, just to listen to people and, and especially regarding mental health, uh, don't be scared to, uh, reach out to someone and don't be scared if you think you're struggling because there's such a, a, uh, stigma. Historically, there's been a stigma with mental health and it's, and there really shouldn't be. It's an illness. It's no different in its ability to devastate than cancer. And and it, except in the sense that people refuse to admit it a lot of times. And uh, we all need to sort of, you know, as the the rate of suicide has increased, we all need to rethink that and how we view mental health and what we can do to help. Agreed 100%. Yeah. And Ivan, I can't thank you enough for allowing me to steal some of your time today. Oh, I'm flattered. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Yeah, I've been, you know, who wouldn't want to talk about themselves ad nauseum? <laughs> <laughs> and we get to talk college football and sports. Yes. So. Oh, yeah, that right. too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ivan, thank you so much. You bet. As many of us know, sports is the ultimate reality show. And there's always a story to be told from every game And while we might not know exactly what that story will be, but storytelling is an art. And Ivan has that unique gift to take images and put those into words. And it just draws us in because no matter what the situation is, sports just seems to somehow go beyond just the game and is intertwined into our daily lives. Now that finishes episode 101, and you can find more of our content by visiting our Rich Take on Sports Facebook page and YouTube channel, where you can easily subscribe just like you can on any podcasting platform. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 